Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are in our Advent series, and this one's called With Us. And the very deep question for you to get started with today is, what's your favorite Christmas movie? Enjoy. I grew up in a family that was, I always say this, I grew up in a really nice house in a really bad home. Uh, my parents had a lot of means and the capacity to take care of me and my siblings, uh, but it was emotionally abusive. My mom's family is littered with addiction and adultery and affairs and pain and brokenness, and they are incredibly religious people. And so it made sense to me the type of religion that they believed in. They were broken. They could admit their brokenness, and they desperately needed God to fix it. And they felt guilty about it. And on a weekly, bi-weekly, as much as they can, weekly basis, they needed to cry out to this God for repentance and for forgiveness. And what was interesting is that I'm fascinated by the world of the church because that's the family that I grew up in, and I'm a big believer in this, that the maturity of your spirituality can never outpace the health of your emotions. If you're not emotionally healthy, you're just not emotionally or spiritually healthy. That's just the way that it works. We didn't teach that well in the church for such a long time. What we taught is that you simply just raise your hand, say a couple of prayers, and everything will be okay. And that didn't work for me. I grew up in wealthy neighborhoods. Beautiful house and a great church, and you know, we went to P.F. Chang's every week. Come on, we were living the American dream, my friends. And yet everyone I knew was unsatisfied. And these are all people that went to church. So I just remember at a young age that this didn't match the way that I encountered God. That for me, at the most personal, deep level, I just always knew that God was there. That even when I went to college and everyone's deconstructing and I'm a biblical studies and theology major and I remember a professor saying, there is just no evidence any way, shape, or form archaeologically that the Exodus existed. And people are like, the Bible's not real. What do I do? And I was like, oh, it's more real. I have to choose to have faith in this thing now. I have to choose to wrestle with this thing now. And so there was all these moments in life where every time that my faith was challenged, for me, it wasn't, I have more doubts, and I did have more doubts. For me, it was disbelief. The conflict just forces evolution. It was an opportunity for growth for me. That's how I experienced it in my life, and there was this deep-rootedness always, somehow, in the midst of the chaos of my family, the discontent of the upper-middle-class neighborhoods that I grew up in, that God is still good, like a deep good, like cellular-level, base-note good, even though this doesn't all reflect it. And for me, I've just been on a mission my entire life of how do we share this good story and good news of God if the story that so many of us have heard is a story of bad news? And that's the mission that I've been on. For me, that's why New Abbey was created, is that the more that I dug into these things, the more that I got into church history, the more that I studied and prepared myself, I realized, oh, there's all kinds of voices out there in the great, big, broad tradition of Christianity. And most of the time, the most interesting voices were not the popes, were not the great theologians, were not the powerful. It was always the, the little nun somewhere, the Mother Teresa's. It was always the St. Francis of Assisi's. It was always the people who in their time nobody cared about, but they saw that the world was chaotic and complex, but they understood there was this deeper goodness about who 
God is. And so with that, I want to talk about the thing maybe that's like nearest and dearest to my heart about how I understand who Jesus is. And for me, I understand Jesus fully through the incarnation. And the incarnation is just this fancy word that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And most of the theology, so to speak, that we've been given is not that God so loves humanity, that God so thinks that humanity is good that God would become human. That's the actual story, by the way. Instead, the story we're told is that God thinks that humanity is so bad that God needs to sacrifice God's son so that you would no longer know, so you would no longer think that you were bad. By the way, go read through all of the scriptures and you're gonna find three references for that. Uh, If you wanna find references for incarnation, the whole thing is loaded with it of God simply trying to remind us of our goodness and the image that we were made in. And those are the things that completely shape me. We're just hardwired for a different narrative for what the scriptures were. I think the Christmas story brings it alive in a new way. So to talk about God with us, which is this bigger idea of incarnation, we gotta talk about some things. We gotta talk about how, how is actually God going about this work? We gotta talk about putting in some new optics or some new glasses for how God is doing this. Then we gotta talk about bullseyes and pies. You get where I'm going with that. And if we can talk about some bullseyes and pies, then we're gonna talk about the difference between a retributive story and a redemptive story. And if we can do some good work in a redemptive story, then we can understand what about God and what about us in this narrative. And then we will end, my friends, with this beautiful realization of God is with you. And so, follow along with me in Matthew chapter one. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's scandalous. The Bible's messy. I hope you know that. We clean this up a lot. It's not. Uh, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph! Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's awkward. Yeah. No one else else think that's like funny or weird? Okay, great. I'll come back to that later. Um, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And we'll come back to a broader definition of what that means. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So the story is one that you've all probably heard a million times about how Jesus was born. And most of the time we focus on the story by trying to somehow talk about like Jesus was perfect and not born into sin and born to a virgin and what all of this means. But there's a bigger narrative going on here about how God actually wants to save people. And I think how God actually wants to save us is that God wants to remind us of our goodness and not to tell us about how bad we were. That God so wants to remind us of our goodness that this God would also come as a human being. This is not just theology. I think what we're going to get to is something incredibly practical about what this actually means for our life. That this is something that is unique to Christianity. It's a narrative that God is fully God and that God is fully human in Jesus. And for us, it's an opportunity to connect to something. And here's why. Whether you want to or not, you cannot connect to a concept. A concept only gets you so far. When we even say things like Trinity, that's a concept that most of you are not walking through your whole life and you're going through the deepest, darkest moment that you've ever gone through and you're like, 
Oh, Father, Son, and whole. I see the dynamic that's taking place just here with kenosis. No! What you're doing is you're crying out to something. You're looking for something personal. You're looking for something tangible. You're looking for something that's been in the mess like you, saying, I don't know how to deal with my life. Would you help me out with this thing? And that's why a baby Jesus is incredibly important, because the story is messy. The story is complicated. It's filled with all kinds of dynamics. As we say in here all of the time, we've done such a bad job taking the Bible literally that we don't take it seriously. And what the story is trying to tell us in a way to take it seriously is there's a deeper truth about what it means to be human. That the messiness of humanity, the lack of figuring it out, the weaving and the turns and the rights and the lefts and the blind corners are actually a part of the process. And in fact, that's where you actually grow. That thing is called faith. So the story that we've been given is a story of perfection. And it's a story that goes like this, that God is so holy and God is so perfect that this God cannot stand to be around anything else that is less than perfect. Anyone heard that narrative? That was, there's just three of us that heard the narrative, no? Has anyone heard that narrative? That's like the general narrative, yeah, thank you. Okay, most of that narrative is actually not found in the Old Testament at all. Oh, that's interesting. Don't you think that if the narrative was really about a God who wants to correct something that happened in the garden, that the Old Testament would mention the garden just one time? It doesn't. Oh, isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating that we've been given a narrative about the work that God's trying to do, and most of the Bible doesn't even talk about that event? Maybe that's not the event. Maybe the event is actually what the Bible talks about. Most of what the Bible talks about in the Old Testament is the Exodus story, that God comes to save a people who are dealing with oppression, right? And this God wants to free these people and the real pain and hurt that they're in so that they would have a life of freedom. And if they could experience freedom, then they could be a priesthood of believers to show that freedom to other people. That is literally the salvation moment of the Old Testament. And so the, the salvation moment of the New Testament, what we say is a universal salvation story because it's for all people, it's not just for one nation anymore, is that God is coming to free people right, through the life of Jesus. But how is God coming to free people? If the point of the New Testament is that Jesus only came to get on a cross, to be killed, to get bloodied, and to die, then how come the vast majority of the scriptures don't talk about that? Isn't that interesting? Don't you think that the, like the opening line of the gospels would be, things are really bad out here, guys. Jesus is born so that he can come and die one day and get on that cross so that God will feel better about you. I know this is like challenging, like a lot of theology or ways that you may have understood God for like all of history. So let me say this, just to add this note, if any of you are uncomfortable, some of you are like, I don't know what this guy is talking about, but whatever. Um, is that the theology of incarnation was the major theology, the major framework, the major glasses that we had on for understanding who Jesus was for the first thousand years of the church. The first thousand years, that's a long time. And let me tell you, in the first thousand years of the church, the church wasn't divided. There was no East, there was no West, there was no Catholic, there was no Protestant. This is how we understood Jesus holistically. And what was so radical and powerful about this message of Jesus is that this Jesus gave human beings value. 
right? That's a radical narrative that most human beings through most of society haven't had. They haven't lived comfortable lives. And so they were being told about a radical new kingdom, a radical new king, a different kind of Christ, a different kind of Messiah, a different kind of God that loved even like the servants, that loved even the slaves, that loved, this is crazy, women. 50% of the population, you're right, wasn't considered a human being through most of civilized history. Not with Jesus, though. Children, like at some magical age in the Roman Empire, well, all of a sudden, if they were men, became adults. But in Jesus, all of these things changed. And we understood that because Jesus came to show dignity and value to who, to who humanity was. That is how we are saved, is that Jesus is showing us how to be human. Now think about that. That's why you have all of these stories of Jesus that talk about how he treats other human beings. It's story after story of him seeing a woman at a well, of him feeding hungry people, the demon-possessed, the people who like had 5,000 demons who were chained that nobody could be around, like these big dramatic stories or what? Jesus goes to them. And when Jesus goes to them, does he say to them, all right, my demon-possessed friend, I need to tell you this, that after I leave here, I'm going to need you to say the sinner's prayer, washed white as snow, say it with me now, right? No, Jesus goes to this person to show this person dignity and value. You're human is what Jesus is doing. 99.9% .9 of Jesus' stories are about Jesus crossing boundaries to people in Jesus' society who were told that they were less than human. It's very clear, come on, that Jesus is interested in this narrative. God is so interested in this narrative that God would choose to become human. I hope that's radically different for you. Because I hope how that shift in narrative, how that shift in starting point, how that shift in theological, by the way, Orthodox Christianity changes in the second thousand years, but that's another sermon for another day, um, about how we became so obsessed with the atonement. And the atonement is this idea of you're bad and God needs to fix that bad thing that's going on in you. It became even more obsessed in Protestant theology where most of the Protestant leaders use that theology to subjugate and colonize planet Earth. Another sermon for another day. Because this, if you weren't the one who had all of the power, right? So here's the story. You're white colonial Europeans. You believe that you've received the message that you're okay now because this Jesus bled out for you. All of the other people groups that you're going to colonize in this world, they're bad. And so you have the authority to go do whatever you want to their lands because you have salvation for them. That's the theology. That's how it meets the practical ground level. Imagine if the incarnation had carried itself out. We're gonna go do what to what kind of human beings? We would never do such a thing because they are made in the image of God. How could I ever go to that land, talk to that woman that way, treat these people in such a matter if I believe that I am made in this image and if I believe that they were made in this image? Talk about practical implications for this world. And so it's been a powerful narrative, power-filled people with power who have continued to use the narrative of atonement in a way that's actually destructive for us. If this is like such high-level theology, I promise you we're going to bring it to the ground level. And some of you, like, send me the heretic email later. That's fine. Because for me, that the more that I look at this, the more that I realize that Christianity is just this beautiful thing that opens itself up into a way that advocates for humanity. And what happens throughout history 
is that powerful people take a narrative and they use it for their own means. And generally not for insidious or malicious means. They just do it because it's the narrative that works for them. And if you're a powerful person passing on a story about Jesus and that narrative works best for you, then you're gonna keep passing it on. But if you pass out a narrative that says that every other person is just as valuable as you are, how does that mess up your economics? How does that mess up the way that you have relationship in this world? How does that mess up family dynamics where some people are more powerful and less people are, or some people are powerless? It radically changes everything about planet Earth. And so how Jesus comes to save the sins of the people is that Jesus provides us a way better, more holistic understanding even of what sin is. So let's do this one as well. One more concept, I promise, and we're gonna get to something practical. How many of you grew up in the world where sin was called missing the mark? Spoiler alert, not in the Bible. Not in the Bible in any way, shape, or form. The idea of missing the mark is a Greek thought that comes from Aristotle and is used by Homer. It's this idea. You play bullseye and you keep throwing that, right, that dart against the board, and it's really hard. Has anyone ever played darts? Have you ever done it with like two beers in you? Good luck, right? Hitting that bullseye, it's really difficult. But imagine if that's the narrative that you have about God now. The God's just playing games, it's like, good luck. No, not this time. Ooh, I wish you were that valuable, uh, right? That's kind of what it's telling you is that no matter how hard you keep throwing these darts, even if you practice all of the time, which is what we tell people, practice by praying more, going to church more, reading your Bible more, doing these spiritual gifts more, do these things, and I promise you'll get closer to meeting the mark. Because what we're told is, you don't meet the mark, Jesus makes it for you, but still fill and live with a little bit of guilt and shame that you don't hit it every day. Is that like a guilty amen? Thank you. I'm trying to know that we're tracking here. And what I'm saying is, what if that's not the story? What if that's not actually what's going on? What if we use a Hebrew idea for what sin is, and it's simply about how do we preserve the shalom or wholeness of something? So instead of a dartboard and missing the mark, I would like you to imagine with me a nice pie. Everyone have this pie in your head right now? It's beautiful. It just came out of the oven. It's steaming. You can't wait to eat it and then somebody comes along and smashes the pie. That's sin. It's about smashing the shalom in the world. And as we say it in here all of the time, Jesus is showing us how to be human. Jesus is not playing games with us to see if we can play darts well. So what we've been said about playing darts well is, well, did you eat shellfish? Mm-mm. Right? We have all these like laws that we think that God is playing some arbitrary game with us just to see if we can do it well or not. That's a sadistic God. The word for holy does not mean that God's trying to make us perfect. The word for holy is that God is so other that God can see you even when you can't see yourself. What a better version for holy, by the way. Don't believe me? It's in the Hebrew Bible. So then what happens is, is that if we think of this shalom or the wholeness that God wants in the world, then what Jesus is trying to do is say, and we say it in here a lot, but hurt people hurt people. That when you're hurting the more therapy that I've done, I talked about my family in the beginning, the more that I can humanize the people in my family. Oh, they were hurt by the people before them. And they were hurt by the people before them. And so they hurt me in the same special ways that they were hurt. And that's often what we do. Most sexual abusers, most of the time when someone's been sexually abused, they've been abused by someone who was sexually abused, right? This, there's just pains and patterns that happen in the world that continue on again and again and again. 
And so what it is is when I'm hurt, I go around and smash pies. That's not a game that we're playing. It's just recognizing how I deal with my insecurity and ego in the world. And so what Jesus is saying when he's coming to show us how to save their people from their sins, it's what if Jesus is modeling for you a way of life, right? The way, the truth, and the life, which is saying, follow me. Interesting fun fact. Jesus never says the words, worship me. Do that, have that fun little theological trip for yourself, right? And Jesus says, follow me all the time, because what if we actually follow Jesus? What if it wasn't some big brainy theology and all of these games? What if it was really every day the simplistic truth of what Jesus is saying of loving God and loving your neighbor, and as, as you love yourself, and as you find healing, as you find transformation, as you find maturity in your life, as you deal with these wounds through therapy, as you find community where you can be vulnerable, as you get into some good health in your life, imagine how you're not going to repay the favor of smashing somebody else's pie. I really overuse the pie analogy. I get it. And that's what Jesus is after. And Jesus is after that, not by showing us some concept that we can't relate to. The most unhelpful Jesus we've ever been given is a Jesus that did something 2,000 years ago and sprinkled magic over us, and now we don't have to do anything ourselves. That is not the narrative. The narrative is this God loves the goodness and humanity so much, this God would become human so that you would know how to follow this God so that you too could also be a better human. And then if you do that, this is not like a, I don't know, like some old school 20 years ago, is he preaching a message of works up there? Uh, no. I'm saying if you could be more like the image of God, imagine what kind of healing that would bring into your life. If these things just didn't magically disappear on a cross 2,000 years ago, that's what somebody told you, but then you prayed the prayer and then your life didn't change. What this is inviting you into is something practical and practice-oriented. And following Jesus is a lifetime's worth of work. And following Jesus is messy. That's why every single story of Jesus is messy, including being born. How clean was birth the other day, Chelsea? Just like Clorox everywhere, shining. You were just like, look at me, that was fun. No, it's an incredibly complicated thing that happens and it's messy for a reason and that's why the story is here. And most of the narratives that we've been given about God is one of perfection and one that you, that you cannot relate to instead of a Jesus who is vulnerable just like you. So imagine this and here's the story. Imagine that Jesus really is born into a manger that Jesus really is born into this complexity and into this messiness. Imagine that God believes that this world is so good that this God would become a human as well. And here's the kind of God that you have now, that this God would actually be held by you. That should radically change your entire life versus a God that is so perfect, so immovable, so absolute, so concept-oriented that this God doesn't need you at all and is just watching you with a judging eye to make sure that you get it right. In this story, this God would become so powerless to put this God's life in your hands, to say, would you look back at me? The beauty of having children, for, for me in so many ways, has been watching my wife be a mother. There's something so powerful about me in this psychological term of mirroring, that when my kids look up into their mom's eyes, usually after like breastfeeding or something like that, TMI, deal with it, you're adults. Um, and to see that my children connect with their mother, to see that there's a mirroring going on here, to see that what they see in her is you're always loved, you're always taken care of, of course you're vulnerable, of course you're fragile, 
Of course you can't make it on your own. Of course you're going to shit yourself. <laughs> but I'm here for you. Seriously. And how many of us want that? Not only that we want that for our lives, but imagine how you would relate to God in a different way if even God is saying, I became vulnerable and fragile so that you could relate to me. That's a different kind of holy. That's a different kind of other. And I think that's the story that we want for our lives. How many of your lives would be different in this place? What would the implications be like if we honored that Jesus was actually human? Because we spent a thousand years in the church through a lot of theology, through a lot of concepts, through a lot of whatever, trying to prove that Jesus was God. I'm not taking that away. That's the beautiful part of what we believe by the incarnation is it needs to be both. We need a God that is bigger than us, more imaginative than us, that can hold the fact that there's 100 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars that is moving outward right at 70,000 kilometers an hour still, that the same amount of matter and energy that was created at the Big Bang is exactly what we have moving out into the universe now. If that doesn't blow your mind that you have consciousness and that you're breathing right now, I do not know what will. You need that God. And you, but you can't always relate to that God. And you need a God who is messy and sweaty and bloody and surrounded by animal crap and deals with people that, this, that are mean to him deals with betrayal, that this Jesus is so human that even this Jesus on a cross would shout out to God and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you now? Now that's beautiful and relatable. And if you can honor this, if God can be with you in this, then imagine how much that opens up the divinity of who God is. But if you only have this divinity of God and you're always scared of God, what does that do to your actual relationship and the capacity for healing and transformation in this world? I think it dramatically shapes everything. How many of you in this room, if you started off your life with simply this belief, your body is good? That's what the incarnation teaches you. How do you know that? Because Jesus was born in the same kind of body. Your body is good. How often has the church proclaimed that from a mountaintop? How many of you told that your body is working against you? That your body is not to be trusted? That your flesh is filthy? Not the story of the incarnation. How many of you would love to have started life by somebody saying, you're so valuable that you should be held? How many of you today are like, somebody please hold me? Imagine the trajectory of your life if that was the message that was repeated to you every single day. This is the implications of this kind of theology. That God with us should change everything. That Emmanuel, this idea that you get the full divinity, the majesty, the awe, the wonder of God, that's something that we've done such a good job of talking about. We've done such a poor job of talking about the humanity of Jesus. And that Jesus was really human. Jesus really like probably had colds and dealt with stuff just like you. And isn't that beautiful? And isn't that what you need? And even in the midst of all of that growth and evolution, this Jesus still loved himself enough right? Jesus' baptism, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. This is why we say these words in here all the time, because if it can be true about Jesus, then it's true about us in Christ. And how does that radically change the world? So would you stand with me and hold one another's hands? We're going to do it again, mainly because two-thirds of you weren't here when we did this, so we're, uh, 
We do this every week for a reason. It's that I really believe that this is what we believe about God. That just as much as we believe that God came as a human being, as we're born into a messy, complex manger in narrative, where it looked like his mom like, got raped, right? This is the story. You want to talk about a messy story in a messy culture. And how complicated are so many of your lives? And so we start every week by saying we want to honor the diversity that's within you. That's why you hold the hand of somebody next to you. That you first and foremost accept that you're good. How many of you need to hear the message of Emmanuel, God is with us? How many of you need to hear these words from God, I'm with you? I'm with you. Coming out to your mom last week, I'm with you. Giving birth, I'm with you. How tough Thanksgiving was for so many of you, I'm with you. For friends who I have in this room who are dealing with infertility, I'm with you. For the divorces, I'm with you. For the shame, for the pain, for the hurt, for the brokenness, I'm with you. How many of us need that message again and again and again? And to be told, no, you're good. You're good. You're valuable. You're vulnerable. You're fragile. It's okay. So was I. How many of you can relate to a God in a different way? And then when we talk about all of our differences, hopefully they're not differences that separate us and exclude us, but they're differences that now include us in a whole new way. And when you hold that person's hand next to you, if you just said, I am in need with a God who is with me, I am in need of a God who calls me good, then you can say, the person whose hand I'm holding is different than me. They might be male, they might be female, they might be trans, they might be gay, they might be straight, they might be bi, they might be rich, they might be poor, they might be moderately incomed, they might be Democrats, they might be Republicans. They are all kinds of different things. And if I know that I need God and I need God to be with me, then in this moment where I open myself up to a little bit more of humanity and God saying that God's with them as well, and that the story of Jesus coming into the world was that constant reminder. And when this person next to me forgets that about themselves, of whose image they're made in, that God is actually with them, then when I hold their hand and squeeze it tight, I am reminding them in this moment that they are not alone. Because we all forget our goodness, our value, and the image that we're made in. And the gift that we have for one another on, a, on the season like Christmas is to remind each other, God came and is with us. God is always with us. And when you forget, I will remind you. And when I forget, will you remind me? That is the story of Emmanuel. That is the story of good news. That is the story that you don't live at 30,000 feet in theology, but that you do every single week when you squeeze somebody's hand, that you do every single time that you deliver a meal, that you do every single time when you send out that text to say, I haven't seen you in a while. That's the gift that we have with one another. Would you pray with me? God, thanks that the story of Christmas is not just a story that's 30,000 feet in some obscure theology that doesn't mean something. Jesus, we thank you that you came as a reminder that you've always been here and that you are here now. God, thank you for showing us how to be vulnerable, how to be fragile, how to have a need so that we could be honest with ourselves and with others and vulnerable 
I'm fragile. I have need. And so, God, would you remind us today that you're with us? And for all of the people in this room who need that reminder, if they forgot it in any way, would they just simply feel it in the person whose hand they're holding, that they're not alone? God, that you've come and you've stood in solidarity with all of humanity and that we get the gift of following you and standing in solidarity with one another. And in that, God, would we share the good news with the world in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you find the same people around you and answer this question because the computer froze, which is, uh, where do you need God with you right now? Or where can you be with other people in their lives at the moment? We will fix the computer momentarily. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.